everybody. Before we get deep into this week's podcast, I want to say that this was recorded between season one and season two. I had this burning desire to talk to friends of mine that had been part of the Charlottesville protests and had been in the fray of the violence that was going on and using their bodies to try and prevent more more violence. It's with my friend Brittany Kane Conley or Rev Smash. When when this pandemic started, I kind of put these on the back burner not really knowing how they would fit because I had shifted a little bit to try to interview people really talking about how they are surviving and staying safe and integrating and helping their clients integrate and be reflective and all the self-care tools to kind of help us survive and thrive and uh, come out of this hopefully a little bit better than we came into it. Oddly enough, when I listened to this, just to kind of figure out how to edit it, the things that Brittany talks about, the ways that she tried to deal with the trauma from the aftermath and then the preceding traumatic events that happened are so pivotal and useful to how we're trying to survive in the pandemic we're in. And I was pretty shocked that it is as relevant today when everything is kind of teetering on us not knowing what's going on, you know, and the information changing all the time, that it is so relevant because she's talking about her trauma and she's talking about how to deal with trauma her own trauma when she was still living living in that city and that city is small and she was encountering people that had caused problems, the police having to go back into the areas where the trauma had happened and the things she did and her community did to find joy and hope and sustainability. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. She is amazing. Please give her a follow on Instagram at Rev Smash. Okay, enjoy. Here we go. Hello, everybody. I'm here with my friend, Brittany Kane Conley, or maybe I should say Reverend Brit- Brittany Kane Conley. She is the co-creator of Congregate with Seth Whispleway, and she is also a United Church of Christ minister. Did I get that right? Yes. Nice work. <laughs> I, I'm not very good at um, organized religion. Um, not good with names or, you know, I just don't care. <laughs> well, you, you nailed it that time. <laughs> Woo! Okay. So I want to know, there's things that I know about you, um, but if you could describe yourself... How would you describe yourself? Okay. Um, Well, first of all, a lot of folks will call me Rev Smash or Smash, and I use she, her, her pronouns. I consider myself to be a pastor, a teacher, and an organizer. And right now I'm living in Chicago. I live with 
my wife and my two beagles who are very needy. <laughs> my wife isn't needy. The two beagles are uh, yeah. <laughs> just, just to make that clear in case she's listening. And um, yeah, I really don't like to generally call myself an activist, but I, I guess you would say I'm an activist as well. Yes, I would say that. Okay, thanks. I, and I under and I yeah, and I understand the complexity because it's sort of like, you know, things that people call themselves, like when people call themselves an ally, right? But their entire life and style is not allied, right? Um, I prefer when other people call me things like that. <laughs> rather than myself it's like when somebody calls themselves a sage i'm like "Mm, are you yeah that that one's not okay like you can't call yourself a prophet either no please i can say sometimes i get you know sometimes i have wisdom that i think may not be for me but feel free to throw it away it may not be wisdom at all i like that about you oh thanks So one of the things, one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you um, is because I think your work doesn't just span, at least from my understanding, doesn't just span what happened in Charlottesville in 2017. And I think if I was looking from the outside, you know, as somebody that really didn't know you very well before that, it would seem to me that it was kind of a jumping off off point for even more concerted activism or organizing. But I'm guessing that you were already doing some of this stuff long before Charlottesville ever happened. Yeah, I definitely was in different ways. I think um, kind of what went down in Charlottesville and the particularities of the situation pushed me into a place that I'd never been before and required of me particular skills and particular time that I hadn't been able to give previously to that. Um, But it definitely was a journey. I I feel like I I learned a lot kind of in the the few years previous to 2017 that prepared me uh, to be ready for what I was called to do in Charlottesville. Things like, um, going to Standing Rock and doing other mm. other local actions like Mama's Day bailouts um, and really working together with local activists really taught me a lot. You know, people often ask if I've, you know, where I've been trained. Um, <laughs> and I, I tell them that I've been trained by showing up alongside local activists in Charlottesville who have been doing this for many, many years. Um, so I think that prepared me in certain ways, but in, in other ways, I really was completely unprepared for what, what we were called to do in Charlottesville. But I think that was probably the case for most of us. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think any of you with as much as even you were preparing could have been prepared for what happened. Yeah. It was an entirely new circumstance, I think in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. Just, a side note, after after the um, person ran uh, drove through the crowd, mm-hmm. like a year later, I was at a protest in downtown Portland that was similar group of 
group of men had shown up. Unite the Right. It might have been Unite the Right. It was one of those guys, one of those group of um, men that think their rights are being removed. Um, and a, and one of their tactics had been to say that we're going to be somewhere and then either not show up at all or go to a completely different place. So we had found out I was I was I wouldn't say I was a medic, but I was part of the medic crew. I wouldn't give myself as much credit as being a medic. Um, and so some of us split off and went to a nearby town, Vancouver. So this is like fresh off what happened in Charlottesville. And we were the cops were doing that that thing where they try to get you in a barrel. Mm -hmm. You know, they block you in or whatever. And it's I mean, it's just it's it's what we've been seeing over and over again, where it feels like the protesters end up being the target rather than the the white supremacists. Yeah. But this guy from that group got into it. It was a huge pickup truck and barreled through a group of people. And man, and they managed to get out just in time. He backed, he backed into, you know, it was like went into reverse. Mm. And um, so I was like, oh, for sure something's going to happen. Like he's going to get in trouble. I think somebody might have gotten nicked, but nobody was like seriously hurt. But it's terrifying, you know, on the on the end of what happened in Charlottesville to be in in a place where this a similar thing is happening and i found out like six months later that he got off with nothing yeah i'm not surprised to hear that i think i think in a lot of excuse me i think in a lot of protest situations i've seen not quite the same thing happen i mean um in charlottesville you know that was uh more than just kind of pushing a car through a crowd It, it was a yeah. When it seemed like a, a premeditated terror attack. And yeah. But seeing other things happen where either police or white supremacists will uh use their vehicles to move through people is really troubling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you if you look across the world too and you see how many times that's used as a terrorist tactic, mm-hmm. you know, in England, in France, like to use a vehicle as anything other than something to drive in or park seems really um, like a cruel, especially in, on part of the police as a cruel tactic. Yeah, absolutely. But back to you. So what I kind of what I wanted to talk about is I am interested in, I'm interested in you and yes, I'm interested in your work, but even more than that, because this is about people. This podcast is about people either, you know, having a vision and having that vision kind of explode into something that they didn't realize it could be, or kind of having a vision and then being carried into something completely different because of that vision. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I see you. Like you have a vision to kind of protect your protect the community and stand up to white supremacy. And it kind of explodes into something that you did not necessarily foresee happening. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think, you know, even previous to having a vision to protect the community, I was throwing around the word congregate uh, kind of the the year before in 2016, um, just thinking about ways to create community in Charlottesville. And there's something really meaningful to me about the idea of congregating together, about coming together for something larger than ourselves. Um, obviously the word congregate is typically used for congregation. And I realize that can have some negative connotations for folks. Um, but I think kind of the concept of congregating was really swimming around in my brain well before we even knew there were going to be any white supremacist, uh, rallies. But as we moved into 2017 and it became more and more clear that this was, uh, not just going to be kind of one thing that we encountered that there were going to be, many white supremacist riots and rallies and that we were going to continually have to uh, resist in a multitude of ways. Mm. Seth and I really began to notice pretty quickly that particularly people of faith in Charlottesville really weren't prepared. Um, We were hearing a lot from folks that they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to respond. And, you know, all of the all of the messaging we were receiving from the city government and from the police was pretty much, you know, just stay at home, avert your eyes, let them have their rallies, let them do their white supremacist thing. They'll go away. Fuck that. Yeah. And it, I mean that it's, it's still baffling that um, yeah. with all of the information they were given by activists who were doing really important work about how violent this would get about what this was all about, that they continued with that messaging um, but, you know, most most religious folks, most church people, um, they bought that message, you know, full mm-hmm. force. And yeah. even even throughout all of our organizing, uh, most of uh, I don't I don't know if I want to say most, but probably most of um, the, the pushback we got was from religious folks who mm. um, kind of just wanted us to stay home and pray and consistently told us that we were being a part of the problem and that we were causing violence by having presence. So it, it, you know, went from people, some people letting us know that they weren't prepared and we having some ideas about who we could invite to help us prepare um, and starting kind of this movement into um, creating a longer lasting way to prepare and equip people of faith to do public witness and to show up in times that really mattered for our community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then how do you, how do you as somebody of, you know, faith and conscience and I don't, you know, wanting to, wanting to not just, say with your words that, that, you know, that white supremacy is wrong, but say with your actions and your body and every, you know, every part that it's, that it's wrong, that it's evil. Mm. Um, How do you deal with um, pushback from people that are supposed to be, for lack of a better word, allied with you? Right. Yeah. I mean, it took on many different forms I've been reading back through some of my emails from 2017 um, that I received from pastors and and other religious folks 
voicing their concerns and depending on, you know, who it was and what type of relationship with them I had, I, I definitely would often voice my theology and my faith and the reasons why that compels me to show up and to be alongside of the folks who are wailing in the streets. Um, but a lot of it too, it was interesting when we had uh, the anniversary of August 11th and 12th, a year later, we had a lot more people show up to be trained. And what we heard, mm. what we heard from a lot of those folks was that they uh, felt some sort of shame or guilt for not being there the first time around. And I, I think by continually showing up by, um, you know, even, even after the big unite, the right rally, we continued to have a lot of issues in Charlottesville and we would continue, yeah. continue to show up. And I think by people seeing that, um, that eventually compelled them to come alongside and do the same work. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, the analogy of a wave crashing against, you know, stone that over time <laughs> wears away. At the yeah. stone. Uh, often it feels like it's very, a very slow process. It is very slow. And it, it's still, you know, even after the, all of the horrible things that we've witnessed and dealt with in Charlottesville, there are still people who want to pretend like it didn't happen. There are still people who want to get back to quote unquote life as normal um, mm -hmm. without realizing that, you know, the structural white supremacy embedded in Charlottesville was part of the problem in the first place. So, yeah. you know, it, we will, we won't ever be able to uh, bring everyone along as quickly as we'd all like um, but I, yeah. wa I was heartened by the number of folks who did eventually come along. Yeah, because it's like there's no there's no returning to normal because the normal is white privilege. Right. And uh, the only people that benefit from that are are white people. And then you're you're just embedding deeper white supremacy instead of being vigilant about being somebody that is willing to you know undo those systems yeah and i think it's especially obvious when people say things like that there's there's so many people who did show up in charlottesville particularly black and brown folks whose lives were forever changed um yeah. you know in an instant and in a weekend and and the continuing rallies and riots um and white supremacist nonsense that sh that charlottesville continues to deal with so you know when people talk about wanting to go back to normal it's the same folks who just want to you know we'll talk about business as usual um yeah they who can who can go back to normal right and who want to focus on you know getting tourists back into town and making more money and uh, feeling good about themselves whereas yeah. in in reality uh you know, all, our lives were shifted in an incomprehensible way. Yeah. 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 And from, for you, can you kind of speak to how you, how, you, I guess what I want to know is what happened to you afterward? Like what changed for you on a, almost on a cellular, cellular level, good and bad. So what I mean by that is, what changed for you as somebody that wanted to organize? Cause I know a little bit about, you know, what you did on the border. And so I'm, so I'm interested in, 
what changed for you in your work? I guess maybe that's a better way to put it. And then what changed for you? Like you, you have trauma now Mm -hmm. associated with that. And how do you deal with that? And how, how did you figure out how to move forward? Yeah. Or have you, or have you figured that out? Maybe a little bit, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I think in, in terms of work, um, it's when you're in kind of a, a crisis situation and you experience uh, something with a community, I think it's really like a liminal space, right? Where um, yeah. you, you go through the depths of horror with other people. You really, I think you kind of mentioned this, there's no turning back really from that point. Um, you know, there are different, there are different ways to engage and different choices of engagement. But I think afterwards we, even though many of us were dealing with significant trauma, we were still very fired up and ready to address injustice and particularly address white supremacy kind of wherever we saw it popping up. You know, you mentioned um, that I went to the border to, to do work uh, with asylum seekers there. We welcomed asylum seekers to Charlottesville and to our homes uh, to try to support them um, and their struggle for life. And in many ways, we continued in Charlottesville to um, push for equity. You know, there was a big push for equity in the schools. There was a, a group that was really invested in getting any sort of Confederate imagery removed from public schools and making our public schools safer uh, for black and brown children. Um, mm-hmm. From that to making sure that the white supremacists were somehow brought to justice and supporting the community through mutual aid. Um, we all were really kind of invested. And I think that's a good thing, but we were also, I think, kind of stuck there in that space. Um, yeah. You know, our lives were very focused on kind of the aftermath of all of, of the terror and the trauma. And I think that's a good thing in many ways that we were able uh, to continue the work and continue supporting each other. But I think it was also difficult for many of us to function in other facets of life. I know for, for my, for myself, um, there was, it was just kind of constant hypervigilance and, you know, for well over a year afterwards. And that didn't really dissipate until I moved away. Um, and even, Mm. even in moving, I've noticed, you know, there are certain times of the year when anniversaries come around that my hypervigilance kicks in really, Mm. really seriously. And I have a hard time being in public spaces. Um, my wife has kind of gotten used to the fact that if we're going to a show or a concert or anything that I want to sit on the very end of the row and, you know, in, in the very back so that I have a view over everything. I think that's one way that trauma has really set in for me. Um, I've had a difficult time reading and writing and really, I think, engaging in deep thought um, just because I, I think my mind hasn't really been able to go there. Um, yeah. I'm definitely starting to come out of that and I think come out of the hypervigilance, but I know that would be much more difficult for me if I was still in Charlottesville. I, I do know, you know, yeah. there's a handful of activists and other folks that have left because they, they don't feel safe there. Um, and they, they kind of, it's difficult, especially because Charlottesville is such a small town that many of us, you know, just in our daily lives, we're moving through these spaces 
of of terror essentially every day and kind of being mm. reminded of things on a regular basis and, and continuing to have white supremacists show up in a lot of public spaces. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you kind of, you can't blend in in Charlottesville. You can't disappear. Um, so I think that has really had a toll on a lot of folks. Yeah, I would imagine. And, and you, on top of that, it's not like you can tr- trust the police force. No. And so everywhere you're going, you know, it's, what is that? It's like, um, I don't know if it's the amygdala, but whatever, like, makes your anxiety kind of spike mm-hmm. that um, I start to sweat. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what's that? You know, like, I can feel prickly and sweaty. And I know, like, I'm, I'm kind of, because of my own trauma growing up, I'm kind of not very much has to kind of, you know, get that going in me, mm-hmm. but, it, but I can separate myself from that, you know, for the most part, because I don't live where I grew up. I'm not re-engaging with the people that harmed me, but you're living in a city at that time and with other activists where you're constantly having to go to those places or walk through those places or bump it shoulders with police or with people that were part of that traumatic event yeah it, it uh and continue to to purposefully engage in similar circumstances i think that's the yeah. thing is you know when you're in a traumatic situation it's it's typically best to get out of that situation and um for for activists in general not just for people in charlottesville it, it's this the cycle of trauma that you continue yeah. you know to put yourself back into on purpose um, and, you know, I have some friends that are doing some really cool work on the trauma of movement um, and movement mm. spaces. And I, I think it's really important work because yeah. you're you get to this point where you're just almost constantly heightened um, and you don't it's hard to know how to, like, come back down and, yeah. and live a life that isn't so heightened all the time. Um, and that's that's yeah. why people burn out so quickly. That's why people um, are ill. And, and deal with a lot of other things be- because of those situations that um, activists and organizers and movement folks deal with all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes complete sense to me. Just compassion fatigue too. You're like, <laughs> you're like in it all the time. Yeah. Um, so I guess what I, one of the things that I'm interested in is for you, moving was a big part of, starting to kind of undo that tension inside of you for the, you know, anxiety or um, whatever has you heightened all the time kind of gets, starts to shift as you move to Chicago and you're still shifting it. Mm-hmm. Were there specific things? Cause one of the things that I like to ask people is, you know, what, what kind of self-care or spiritual practice, which can be exactly the same thing. They don't need to be separated, but some people have different things that they do for different areas of their life, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, um, put them together or separate them. But, and I'm interested in what you do, but I'm also interested in, were there things that you found other than just moving? Because some people don't, you know, can't move. Right. It's, you know, and I'm sure you, you would, you would say this it's it's a privilege to be able to move oh absolutely 
And so moving aside, were there things that you put into place that maybe didn't relieve it, but maybe let a little of that tension off so that like, let's say I have people listening that are suffering from the same thing. Maybe something that you tried, maybe it doesn't work for them, but maybe they haven't even, it hadn't even occurred to them to try. Yeah. I think one thing that at a personal level and at a community level became really important to me and other folks was to practice joy. And, you know, that's Mm. not, easy but one way that (laughs) one way that I think really worked for me was you know sometimes we would just have these purposeful dance gatherings Um, like let's just have a little party and let's all dance and those tended to be uh, just incredibly joyful and to be to be with people that you're usually with kind of on the street and in really intense situations um, in a different type of situation where, you know, there's dancing and joy and revelry is really healing. And I, yeah, um, you know, I know not everyone likes to dance, so I think that can, <laughs> that can be other, other things as well. Um, but for me and my community, you know, we had some really stellar dance parties that became releases for us and became way, yeah. ways to really be in spaces with one another and enjoy each other um, in new ways. That's that's really cool because I could I could even see that for people that you know aren't wouldn't really consider themselves dancers or into dancing, that it also could just become a giggle fest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it was a ton of fun. Yeah, that you know, sometimes if it's just like playing games or, or doing other things as well, I think it, I think it took a while for us um, as a community to figure out how to do those things, you know, when, anytime you have a really intense situation like that, there people get hurt. Um, people, you know, there's a lot of healing that needs to do even interpersonally between those who have been working together. But I, yeah. I think eventually once we got to that point of just being able to, to be together um, and let loose and have fun that it, it was really, really healing for us. Mm, that's good yeah because i i mean it's like anything else um you have to be intentional with it just like you're intentional with your activism and your organizing as as a group you also have to be intentional with we're not going to talk shop right now we're gonna play a game we're gonna dance we're gonna eat good food together yeah watch watch the office or whatever you're into (laughs) Yeah, I definitely, that was helpful. And then for me, um, I had a really wonderful group of people. I mean, I I called them my people. I think, you know, at least my wish and my hope and my prayer is for most folks that they they know who their people are and that they have found their their people. Um, And for me, it it was um, kind of a group of friends centered around an intentional Christian community that uh, was a really rad community doing some really cool things. And I went there weekly for morning prayer and we started a house church group together. Um, and we, we really, I think leaned on each other in incredible ways. Um, I think without that group, I don't know how I would have done much healing um, because that was, you know, as, as someone who, was often facilitating and leading many things in the community. It was one of the few places where I could take off all of that. 
um, and be fully myself yeah. and be fully vulnerable and uh, have those folks hold me in that space. So I think that was really important to me as well. Yeah, that is, you no. cannot buy And it's hard, that. it's hard to find and it takes, you know, time, time to build and develop, but I'm yeah. really, really grateful that I was able to have, have that space. Yeah. It's really beautiful. I like that. Yeah. It's like sure. chosen family. So do you have, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears. My, what, so you moved to Chicago. What is, what is in Chicago? What are you yeah, doing? Yeah, I'm working Chicago? for an organization that provides housing and healthcare to folks who are experiencing homelessness, um, which is great. I'm enjoying it. I've also recently started organizing with Lighthouse Foundation, which is a pretty new um, movement slash organization and we or they or we I guess now me too um, advanced <laughs> advanced justice for uh, black LGBTQ plus people throughout Chicagoland um, yeah I'm oh, really pumped about that's it. Cool. it I really appreciate it the way the organization is set up and the the specificity with which we work um, you know there are some primarily queer neighborhoods in Chicago that um, are kind of founded on white supremacy and um, doing, mm. doing the work there to acknowledge white supremacy and the way that it works, even in, you know, the queer or the, the gay male community is really important. And I, uh, I'm really looking forward to the work we can do. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I would- so is that, are they just in Chicago or do you know if they have pilot? Uh, just in Chicago. In it's very small. It actually um, evolved out of a church, which is a, a pretty cool story. Um, Lighthouse Church is uh, a church in Chicago that um, primarily serves black queer folks. And um, I think the folks of the church realized pretty quickly that um, in order to do some of the justice work they wanted to do that, uh, they had to form this kind of foundation arm. Um, but the way that it works is, mm. you know, there, there are two parts to the organization. One um, is the black folks who are actually doing a lot of caucusing and figuring out kind of what problems they want to have addressed, problems where they see them in their own lives. And then the other, other side is called CARE. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the solidarity ally arm made up of primarily white folks who um, are working to leverage their resources um, to, to kind yeah. of do the organizing to support um, the goals that are created by the Black caucuses. That yeah, is cool. I'm, I'm pretty pumped about it. They've already, um, I just recently started organizing and doing some uh, kind of white ally trainings, but they've already had a pretty big win. One of the one of the largest organizations serving queer folks um, here in Chicago is the Center on Halstead. Has been around for a long time. Um, it's a huge organization, huge budget. Um, they've done a lot of really wonderful work. However, they were employing a security firm that was owned and run by a Chicago police officer who um, is notoriously racist and. Um, kind of got Ugh. got accused and I think convicted previously of attacking a 
while he was off duty attacking a black security guard and calling him the N-word. So um, a big push of the Lighthouse Foundation was to get that security firm removed from the center on Halstead, and they were able to do that. And um, now the security firm there is owned by black queer folks, which is, yeah, which is, and it's so incredible that, you know, (laughs) the small group of people um, that are, are passionate about justice were able to take on kind of the behemoth that is one of the largest organizations in Chicago. Yeah. And I, I mean, just listening, like listening to that, it is a big win and it kind of sounds like, Oh, maybe that, you know, somebody hearing this might go, well, that's not that big of a deal. And I'm thinking the ricochet effect of not only that guy and that firm being out of there because it had a ricochet effect. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. The, the ricochet effect means it isn't just, you know, that there now is a black and brown queer security guard. It means that people feel safe and then they can let down and then maybe they'll be it'll be easier for them to share more or get more or I mean it just it's limitless what that one action. Oh, for can sure. Do There's definitely, I think, a lot more accessibility, and now I, there there is momentum to um, kind of address other places where this this previous firm is employed yeah. and the ways, um, and address the fact you know that he is still employed by uh, the Chicago Police Department. So you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but this was a huge win for um, such a, a small group of people yeah. to accomplish. That's I, I love good news and there's not very much good news yeah. right now. So that feels good. So that's cool. Um, so I do want to ask, do you have, now that you've moved, so, you know, you aren't in Charlottesville, you're not actively in the same area as, you know, your chosen mm-hmm. community, your people, what are you do? What have you found helps you? Like, do you have a, um, do you have a self care practice or a spiritual practice? And by spiritual, I think I mentioned this to you. I don't mean religious. I just mean something that connects you to body, soul, spirit, kind of. Yeah, kind of for thing. me, one huge thing has actually been reading fiction. I. <laughs> I uh, like I mentioned previously <laughs> I've had a really hard time reading and writing um kind of with all of the trauma I experienced and getting back into reading fiction is one of the few ways that I think my body and mind really just let go um so that has been a really incredible yeah. practice and the other thing that is really important to me um kind of are are the liturgical seasons of the Christian year and I know those can look a lot of different ways for different people, um, but really sitting in, you know, Advent and uh, what Advent means and, and yearning for goodness and yearning for the light and then participating in practices with that every day uh, is really meaningful for me. I think to have kind of a rhythm of life um, that, that matches often yeah. my own rhythm um, and the ways that my body and spirit move has been really helpful. That's good. It's interesting because I didn't grow up, you know, yeah, me with neither. the church calendar at all. And 
the bridge where I pastored, we didn't follow a church calendar, but in the last five years of us being a community, it, it was funny because I think most humans, whether it, whether it's done in a spiritual practice way or it's done as a reflective piece, a lot of people do benefit mm-hmm. from some kind of a rhythm. And over the, you know, over the last five years that we were a community, people just kept saying, I don't really understand the calendar or, but I, I really want to, can I basically, can you look at it and then mm-hmm. edit it for our community? And so we kind of put in little things that would work for our community but just having those moments on the calendar where we're going to maybe every every day feels like a lamenting day because you know our community was most of the people were on the poverty line or struggling with housing or food or you know whatever it was it felt like lament was over their shoulder but even just having a time of year where it felt like you you could lament you could grieve you you know and you could celebrate that there would be even if you just said there's going to be an end to it and it's going to be you know resurrection yeah I I think those it's it's difficult sometimes to you know you, you can't really fake those those things the the celebration or the lament but having permission to do all of those things that we experience as humans um and having a reason you know to celebrate even in the midst of lament i think can be really powerful yeah i like that no oh, well. you're the first one that said that <laughs> i think i think a lot of people are kind of turned off you know by the liturgical year because they've grown up with it in such like horrible ways of like, you know, for Lent, I'm giving yeah. up potato chips. And that's pretty much all it is, is some uh, spiritualized version of a New Year's resolution. Um, but yeah. I think, you know, when you kind of, like you said, when you kind of break break it down to its bare bones and then build it back up in a way that is really helpful for your community, um, I think it can be really powerful. Yeah, I completely agree. That's That's good. So before I say goodbye to you, I do want to know, um, you know, there potentially will yes. be a book in your future. Oh. And I mean, I <laughs> Me hope too. there is. We just need the stars to align for, yeah. and the juices to yeah, flow. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm, um, I've had it in my mind uh, for, to write something for a while now. And I, you know, I, it, it took a while to come at all um, for any sort of writing or uh, kind of creative production to happen. Uh, but I'm in the process and I'm really wanting to um, produce something that tells some stories um, from our organizing in Charlottesville alongside theological reflection. I, for me, that's uh, really mm. an important part. I, um, I think, you know, for me as, as a follower of Jesus, I, um, I feel really compelled to do the work that I do. And I often get a lot of questions about that and people, um, wondering how this fits into, you know, my, my faith and how it's formulated. So I I want to share that as well. 
and hopefully it can uh, be helpful to other folks. Yeah, I can see, I can see two sides of that. It's either, you know, Christians that don't understand that justice is part of the fabric of our faith and who Jesus was and should be inside of us living and active. And then just, I think because of that often louder voice of the church kind of will pray for you motto, you know, the other side is, you know, how can you even right. call yourself a Christian anymore? Yeah. I, I think it's been interesting that a lot of the people who I've been able to connect with and organize with and form community with are not religious or anti-religious and they're always uh, yeah. pretty surprised at first to learn that I'm, I'm a pastor. And then, <laughs> you know, some of the greatest, I feel like um, compliments I've ever received are from atheists who are like, you know, no one's ever made me consider liking Jesus before or something like that. And uh, I, I always take that to heart and just really appreciate that, that, um, that we all can be in community together. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's been way too many, too much, you know, us and them. And, um, and I, I like, I want all the voices. I mean, I do struggle with the, mm -hmm. you know, conservative voice. Um, but I, I do want to stay in a place where I'm open to at least a conversation with somebody. Um, that is, that is probably, my learning curve is I am not very open. It's to probably all of our learning curves. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, 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 I'm looking forward to reading it because it is going to happen. Um, it needs, I think it needs to happen. I think a female voice from somebody that was there um, needs to be heard. And um magnified and something that I trust about you um, is you I'm sure you have ego somewhere in it but I don't see you know you know your ego problem I don't I'm not I, what I'm seeing is you are somebody that doesn't just have to have your own voice heard you will magnify also the voices of others and you know also show who was there and who was standing next to you. It doesn't have to just be all about you. And, and that's something I appreciate about you is you will also trumpet the people that other people should know about Thank you. if they're not. Yeah. They I, one thing that I, I try to always talk about um, when sharing stories about Charlottesville is that, you know, I really, I learned how to show up from black and brown women in Charlottesville who have been doing the work for many, many years and I also try to tell the story that, you know, most of the people um, on the front line with us um, were not cishet white male Christian pastors. Um, you know, they were queer yeah, folks yeah. and black and brown folks and Muslim women and Jewish folks. And, um, you know, it kind of ran the gamut otherwise. But even though we wanted uh, white cis male pastors to show up, um, it, it was the people who are constantly fighting uh, the battles of oppression who are the ones that continued to put the, their bodies on the line. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Every day. And still do. Well, thank you 
for speaking with us and before we go is there anything you want to plug anything you're doing that you want to plug or you think people should be listening to is there anybody that you think I should reach out to to interview that I haven't that I don't know about that may talk to me <laughs> that may talk to you um <laughs> You know, I'm not sure I, I would if anyone is interested in checking out the Lighthouse Foundation, particularly anyone who's in the Midwest. Uh, I encourage encourage you to do that. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty much all I got right now. Well, that sounds good. And I will like um, maybe I can get a link from you to their website and I'll put it in the sure. in the notes from the show. Um so that it'll be really easy for people to find that the lighthouse. And then also all, do you have a, do you have a website or is it mainly just through? Yeah, I don't have a website right now. That's something that I intend to do as I start writing. Uh, But right now I'm just on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Okay. I'll put those in the notes too, um, because I want people to be able to find you and follow you because what you're doing is valuable and who you you are is valuable. Wow. Wasn't that amazing? She is a fearless, passionate woman working for social justice and radical change. I'm so grateful that she was willing to let me interview her and I'm excited for the book that she's going to write. I also wanted to say thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot to me that you're (laughs) taking your time, you know, setting aside moments in your day to give this a listen. I also want you to know that I would love for this to be interactive. I know by its very nature, it tends to not be as interactive, but, you know, I'm posting these on my Instagram at Angie Fatal Soul Care, and I would love to interact with you on there. I'd love to hear your comments, your questions. Please like it, share it, rate it, review it. You can do that on Apple. You, You know, you can find it pretty much anywhere where you listen to podcasts. And, um... Yeah, I just, I felt like it was important for you to know that it matters to me that you listen. It's not lost on me, and um, I'm really grateful for it. So thank you, and there is more really good podcasts in the in the vault that I'm going to be releasing in the next few weeks. So stay tuned, and remember who you are. You are worth knowing, you are worth loving, you are worth being in this world. I love you. Take care.